Wonderful. Well, I'll let you go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 4. We only have three messages left in the book of Philippians. Uh, this one, one next week and one the week after. So at the end of May we do finish the book of Philippians. And then we're going to spend the month of June in the book of Jonah. And then we're going to be spending about the next nine months after that in the Gospel of Mark. So we're really excited about what the Lord is doing. And yet at the same time, I'm going to be really sad um, to leave the book of Philippians. So I just think it's amazing I think to spend time with the Lord in this book and to see him. and I think freshly become aware of how much, in the right sense, I love him and I'm sure we love him. All in here. Through this wonderful, intimate passionate letter from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at just four verses today. We're going to read from verse 10 to the end of verse 13. It says as follows. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, I can't thank you enough for your servant, Paul. Lord, thank you for placing these words on his heart and in his mind and on his pen for us to enjoy, for us to learn from, for us to see you in. And Lord, as we gather around your word afresh today, would you affect us with your greatness and your goodness and your splendour that we may find our joy our source of joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in 1873, whilst crossing the Atlantic, a man by the name of Horatio Gates Spafford wrote the following wonderful hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet should sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well. 
It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. You don't get too many songs written with quite the same graphics as that word. And yet what I think is incredible about that hymn in particular is the reason and the place when Horatio Gates Spafford wrote it. Because he wrote it after two significant traumas in his life. The first was the Great Chicago Fire, the Great Air Fire of Chicago in October 1871. Mr. Spafford was a very wealthy man. He had earned a lot of money. He put a lot of his money in property. And the fire completely blotted out everything he had and his entire income. He lost nearly everything he owned. And so to really make up for that and to really work out what they were going to do next, he sent his wife and his four daughters and to Britain, to their homeland where he wanted them to have a holiday and spend some time just regrouping as a family. And yet as they passed over to Britain from America, in the middle of the Atlantic they came into contact with another vessel and the boat that they were on sank. And just a few days later then, Mr. Spafford's wife telegrammed him just with these two words, saved alone. His four dear daughters had died. They had drowned. And so Mr. Spafford gets on the next boat he can to go to see his dear wife and comfort her. And while he's on the boat between Chicago and Britain, at the place where his daughters drowned, he writes this hymn. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Now, people like this amaze me. It's so affecting when you see and wonder. They're just walking with such contentment in their lives, even in the midst of tragedy. People like this amaze me. People like Matt Gager. Matt Gager, at the age of 21 years age, was just a typical young guy. He's an American young man. He lived in a small town called Bruderhof in Pennsylvania. He liked playing basketball. He went to college. He was just about to finished at college and he attended a small church on a Sunday. Whilst at college he met the girl of his dreams, a girl called Cynthia. And as they spent time together, they continued to date after college and they decided they were going to get married. And yet just two months before they were due to get married, Matt is informed at the age of 21 years old that he is dying of cancer. Six months later, he did die of cancer. And yet four months prior to that, he did indeed get to marry his beloved Cynthia. And in the book Six Months to Live, which was written by his friend, this is what Matt said during his wedding reception. I just want you all to know that I wouldn't trade my life for anybody else's. If I could go back two months and choose not to have cancer, and continue my life as it was, I wouldn't do it. Seriously. I can honestly say that I've never been happier. And it's not just because today is my wedding day. I have felt this way ever since I came home from the hospital. People like this amaze me. And I can wonder, as I'm sure many of you, 
do as well. When you encounter individuals like Mr. Spafford and Matt Gager, how do they do it? How are they experiencing such contentment and joy in their life, even in the midst of great tragedy and great sorrow? How can they be content when they've just lost their daughters or they've just discovered they have cancer respectively? How can they be receiving such contentment? See, the truth is, meeting people like this, the quality that we see in them, it's rare, isn't it? Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful commentary, says the following... He says, contentment is an undervalued grace. As in the 17th century, when Jeremiah Burroughs wrote his great work on the theme of the rare jewel of Christian contentment, so today remains a rare jewel. So it does. When you encounter the rare jewel, when you encounter true and genuine contentment in someone, it's obvious, it's impossible to ignore impossible to ignore the contentment that they are walking through in their life even in the midst of great difficulty. And yet what is also true as Mr. Burroughs says, followed on by Mr. Ferguson, that rare jewel is rare. Not common that you see this grace of contentment displayed in people's lives. And what I love then about this passage is that in Philippians 4, verse 10 through 13, we see this rare jewel of Christian contentment on full display. Paul, in and of his own life, displays for us the secret of contentment. And he doesn't just pull back the curtain on the secret of contentment upon this rare jewel. He holds it out for us. Just like the Philippian church. He says, I want you to have. This secret of contentment here is an open secret and it's described to us and explained to us by Paul. Not to sort of tease us and just say, hey, check me out. It's written to us by Paul in such a way where he says, listen, behold it and learn from it and emulate it. Because God in his grace and in his sovereignty doesn't want the jewel of contentment to always be read. The sovereign grace, I think this is a moment when God is looking each one of us in our eyes and saying, I want you to have this jewel. I want you to walk with contentment. Whether you have plenty or whether you have poverty, I want you to experience this rare jewel. And so how kind of the Lord to keep this here in Scripture for us in these four verses. And in all reality, in Paul, we couldn't have a better teacher, don't you think? I mean, as we've said before, Paul isn't sipping lattes on Manly Beach in this moment as he writes this, okay? He's not in a nice hotel somewhere going, oh, this is, this is nice, I'm having a lovely time, what shall I communicate? Oh, I know, let's communicate to them about contentment. Paul is really going through it in his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says. He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted, and homeless. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse all things. He then details it some more in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. For the servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Listen. By great endurance in afflictions, Hardships, calamities, imprisonments, labours, 
sleepless nights and hunger. Paul isn't writing this from a nice hotel. He's in prison in Rome. He's had a life that has been very challenging. He had to run away from Damascus and Iconium because his enemies plotted to kill him. He's been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He's been beaten with rods on several occasions. He's been shipwrecked on a number of occasions. He had some sort of physical affliction, some sort of thorn in the flesh that he begged God to take away from him. But God said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. And so often he seems to be spending most of his life, particularly as he's writing this stuff, in jail. So I think he's a really good teacher for us. Because there's always somebody else that's got it more challenging than us. And it's Paul. And Paul wants to communicate to us about the secret of contentment, this rare jewel, to hold it out to us to say, I want you to have this as well in your lives. So what is this secret of contentment? Well, two points this morning. I know I usually have three. Occasionally I have four. Today it's two. But it's because there's only two points here. Here's the first point. What is the secret of contentment? What is this rare jewel? Well, here's the first thing, part of it. The first facet of this jewel is this. True contentment is totally unrelated to our circumstances. True contentment, contentment that is stable, that is strengthening, that is peaceful, it is totally and utterly unrelated to the horizontal. It is totally unrelated to our circumstances. See, in chapter 4, verses 10 through to verse 20, Paul turns his attention to one of the main reasons that he's writing this book in the first place, namely his desire to express gratitude to the Philippian church for their support and their generosity towards them. That's really why he's writing this letter in the first place. And so 15 years prior to this moment, the Apostle Paul actually planted the Philippian church. He was the one that got to communicate the gospel to Lydia, He got to communicate the gospel to the demon-possessed slave girl. He got to communicate the gospel to the Philippian jailer. And as each of these individuals came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, a church was born. And the Philippian church that he writes to is that church. And so imagine his surprise when 15 years later, he's in prison in Rome and Epaphroditus, his friend, from the Philippian church, walks in. Imagine the surprise when Epaphroditus greets him and starts talking to Paul while he is in chains, himself representing the Philippian church and starts to communicate to Paul then his love and support of him, but also the Philippian church's love and support of him, as displayed in particular through a financial gift that he's brought for Paul as an expression of their love and their support and desire to bless him. Imagine the surprise when that takes case. And as you imagine that surprise, you can understand verse 10 not coming as so much a surprise because in verse 10 we have his response to that. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. In verse 4, Paul has exhorted them to rejoice in the Lord, hasn't he? Remember, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Philippian church, whatever you're going through, I want you to rejoice. In verse 10, he wants to communicate to them, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because of you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because of the support and generosity you have shown me. 
this financial gift that was an expression of their concern for him and their support of him and their partnership and the gospel with him. It affected Paul to the core of who he was. And so he wants to let him know, I thank the Lord greatly because of you. I rejoice in the Lord because of you. I'm just so grateful for you. And he wants them to know that he's aware that prior to this moment, it would seem that no opportunity has availed itself. So in the second part of verse 10, he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He wants to let them know, listen, I I know that it took you a while to get the gift to me because you had no opportunity. I know that all the time you carried me in your heart. I know all the time you wanted to help me because that's who you are, Philippian church. But it's just now that the opportunity has availed itself and I thank my God for you. And yet as Paul pens these words, he realises that an even greater opportunity than just thanking them for the gift is now availing itself to him. He realises that this is an opportunity to talk to them and care for them in the secret of contentment and to help them see up front that true contentment is totally unrelated to our circumstances. And so he continues in verse 11. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need. (laughs) That could sound a little rude. Thank you very much. I didn't really need it, but thank you very much. That's really what he's saying. But he's deliberately saying it because he wants them to know, I'm not like really, really giving thanks to God for the money. It's not the money itself. You know, because really, I I don't really need it. And then he goes on to tell them this. The secret of contentment. The reality that true contentment is totally unrelated to our circumstances. Listen. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. True contentment, according to Paul, is totally unrelated to our circumstances. Whether in plenty or hunger, abundance, or need. And the classroom of Paul's life is a real one, isn't it? You know, it's, it's real. Paul undergoes the test of adversity and he undergoes the test of prosperity. The test of adversity is obvious. You start reading through all the other texts and as I said before, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned, he's been left for dead, he spends most of his time in prison. He has undergone the hunger and the need and the thirst. The Bible often frames it as the test of adversity. But he's also undergone the test of prosperity. And I think sometimes we leave that one out. But he's clearly saying here, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I I know what it is to have lots, to have plenty, to have abundance. We need to notice that. Because in all reality, even in the midst of abundance and plenty, you may have noticed the human heart remains vulnerable to discontentment and coveting, doesn't it? Wealth alone does not create contentment. Wealth alone does not create the rare jewel that Paul is talking about here. Prosperity, in all reality, brings with it its own unique temptations, which is why Paul says to Timothy in one of the Timothy letters, listen to what he says. 
about this issue of prosperity. I was sobered by this this week. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Same word. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Would you be content with just food and clothing? Then he says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced with many pangs. That is sobering and frightening at the same time, don't you think? Because I think we like to think that we're not rich. But if we're honest and we examine the world and we examine where we live, he's addressing us. Whenever we're reading in the Bible about rich people, we need to realise that's me. We don't often think that because we judge ourselves compared to everybody else and we think, yeah, but I don't live in that massive house, so I'm not very rich. No. Biblically defined and will defined, we are the rich. And Paul warns against it here. He says, listen, you need to take special attention. We need to take special heed because we're the rich that he's talking about right here. There are many pangs, many difficulties that come through being rich. And so Paul wants to take us by the hand and note he wants to help us see the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Part of the secret is understanding that true contentment is totally unrelated to our circumstances. Whether you have everything or nothing, whether you have plenty or poverty, you can still have true contentment because it's not related to that. Oh, how we need to hear this. Oh, how we need to hear this. Because this is a side of the rare jewel that I think we don't often see, and yet we need to see. And I need it more than anybody. You see, the sinful heart and the world are constantly feeding us the lie that if only I had this one thing, then I'd be content. Media works on that premise. Marketing works on that premise. I'm going to help you see why you need my product, and then I'm going to sell you. Because I'm going to help you see that you need this, And if you can only use this type of shampoo on your hair, you will be a happy man for the rest of your life. Marketing works like this. So most things we see on the TV are understanding this philosophy. That I've got to help you see your need and then I'm going to fill it with my product. And we take the line. Partly because of the world and partly because of our own sinful hearts and we get many lines coming our way. Given our sinful natures and given the world, we are led to believe on many occasions that if I just had this one blank, I would be content. If I just had this one relationship, if I just had this boyfriend, or if I just had this spouse, or if I just had this baby, I'd be content. I know my life would be complete. I'd probably want for nothing else. Or if I just had this circumstance, if I could just walk through my life for a moment as a healthy person, if I just 
had this job or if I just had this set position. I'm confident that if I just had those things, I'd be really content. Or if I just had this one thing. If I just had this car so so that I didn't break down all the time. Or if I just had this one widescreen TV. Or if I just had the house. If I could just have one thing. Lord, if it just give me one thing, just help me to own our house. Because then I'll be content for the rest of my life. See how subtle? And yet how it comes all the time. If you could just have the blank, you will be content. You will be peaceful and joyful and secure. And the Apostle Paul takes us by the hand as a wonderful pastor and says, listen, you wouldn't be. You wouldn't. You can't find your security in a relationship or a thing or an object. No, true contentment comes to us despite our circumstances, whether we have plenty or hunger, abundance or need. C.J. Mahaney says it this way, I love it. He says, discontent is the air that we breathe in our culture. And it's not only the air that we breathe in our culture, it's present and active in our hearts as well. R.C. Sproul helpfully describes this sin at work when he writes the following. Our misery is so often enhanced by our ability to contemplate a better life than we presently enjoy, often coupled with the awareness that we are barely capable, if indeed capable at all, of gaining or achieving the ideal life. And this is the stuff of which dreams and nightmares are made. How true that is. Our misery and discontent is so often enhanced by our ability to contemplate a better life. If only I had this, I I think I'd be sorted, I'd be made. And yet we start to realise that I'm barely capable, or indeed capable at all, of getting that item, that blank. And so this tends to be the thing that dreams and nightmares are made of. Dreams that we aspire to, and nightmares, because we realise I'm never going to get the blank. And it's that blank that I'm relying on to cause contentment in my life. Well, the Apostle Paul says to that very clearly, holding out to us the rare jewel, true contentment is totally unrelated to our circumstances. It's totally unrelated to where you live. Totally unrelated to what you have. You know, I'd have to say, I was saying to a few folks yesterday, you know, in Britain, people moan all the time. I mean, just, you know, we complain. We know how to complain. And for a long time when I moved to Australia, I thought you guys never complained. It was amazing. I remember saying to everybody, these guys never complain. It's awesome. No one ever complains about anything. And then I got to know you. <laughs> and here's something I'll just put out there. I've never lived in a place that so many people say they hate and they're desperate to get out. I think there could be sinful hearts at issue in there too. Because the Lord's placed us here. And the Lord's called us here. And the Lord's building his church here. And if Paul can find contentment in a prison in Rome, I can find contentment wherever I live. Because we just want to serve him. And in all reality, if I'm understanding this correctly, what he's talking about here is the reality that true contentment 
has nothing to do with our circumstances. He's learned it. That's why he says in verse 11 and verse 12, twice he says, I have learned, I have learned. It's something he's learned over time. But that's not all he's learned. He's also learned, number two, that true contentment is wonderfully found in Christ alone. It's not found in our circumstances, but it can be found, wonderfully found, in Christ alone. Look with me at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love that. How powerful a statement. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Herein we find ourselves looking at one of the most often quoted verses of the Bible. I mean, I've seen it on t-shirts before. It usually gets slammed out there at all opportunity. And yet, in all reality as well, it is unfortunately one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses of the Bible as well. Often quoted, often misused and misapplied. Because very often that verse is isolated and taken out of context and is supported to simply mean this. There is simply nothing I cannot do. I can do everything. Whatever I put my mind to, I'm going to smash it out. Yeah, I'm sure God will help me. It'll be really useful. But whatever I want to do, I can do. And so you see it on T-shirts, you see it on banners. You ever see it on sports stars? So I, I really like the NRL. I'm becoming a true Australian. And the NRL is now my favourite sport. Soccer is, is gone. That was, that, was, that was last year. NRL is now the next big thing. And, and you watch these guys, and often, kid you not, often when they, when they strap up their wrists which are like three trunks. When they strap them up, and like me, if, if I wrote a verse on mine, you'd be like, I can't even see it. But that, that wrist is so big, you can see it. And often you do see Philippians 4.13. And I think it's well-meaning. That probably criticism is to try and encourage folks. But it's totally out of context. It is not. You are not going to be able to walk through that man and smash him to pieces because you can do all things through him who gives you strength. That's not the point. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not like a chance to do the reality is God in his grace puts divine limitations on our lives as well, doesn't he? He does. So if I go in for X Factor, I'm not going to win. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd, give it, I'd give it large. You know, I might go for like, I believe or something, and they go, thanks very much, you know, we'll give it a miss. You know, because it doesn't matter. Even if I walk in, just saying, I can do all things through him who brings me strength. All right, here we go. Um, it's not going to work. I'm not going to win. Same as if I went in for, so do you think you, you could dance? You know, I can't dance. So it's not going to work if you you could all lay hands on me. You could prophesy over me. I'm not going to win. It, it, the whole point, he's not talking here about I can do anything I want through him who strengthens me. I mean, I, I do consider that I might still have the ability to be a sports star. I do. I, I think somewhere that sort of sports star pastor, that could be a good link there. But I also know NRL would probably not be my game. It doesn't matter how many times I strap up Philippians 4.13 on my arms. The first person I hit, I'm going to snap like a twig. There's no way. There's no way at all I'm going to last a minute. It's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying that there is simply nothing we can't do. There are divine limitations put on our lives. But here's what he does mean. Because I think it's profound. What he does mean is that whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, whether we be in plenty or in poverty, whether we have it all or whether we have nothing, 
there can be true contentment in our lives in and through Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. That whether I have plenty or poverty, whether, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full to the brim, it doesn't matter. I can find true contentment and there can be true contentment for each and every one of us because I can find true contentment through Him who strengthens me. Whatever I find in the horizontal, I can walk through my life with peace and joy and contentment if I'm looking up. Because whatever the horizontal is going on, there is true contentment to be found in Jesus Christ. We can do all things through Him who strengthens us. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can be strengthened. That's what he's talking about here. And it is obvious, it is obvious that Paul has indeed been strengthened by Jesus Christ, isn't it? See, in a nutshell, what we're learning here is that Paul was content because of Christ. Paul was profoundly content, no matter what was going on in his life, because of Christ, because of a relationship with Jesus through which he was strengthened. And if we've been paying attention, we will have seen that this has been taking place all the way through the book. We've been reading and hearing about this all the time. So Philippians 1.21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so if I live, that's great. Living will be relying on Christ and serving Jesus all my life. And if I die, well, that'll probably be gain, because then I'll be with Christ. So I can't decide which one I want. And then Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not hard to see the strengthening effect that his relationship with Jesus Christ had on his life. The strengthening effect of knowing the one who is sovereign. The strengthening effect of knowing the one who was ultimately overseeing all things in his life, either causing it or allowing it for his splendour and his glory, and was always there sovereignly then overseeing Paul in his life. Augustine said it this way, nothing happens unless the omnipotent one wills it to happen. Either he permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. Paul knew that. As he sits in a jail in Rome, he understands that somewhere at the bottom of it all lies Christ. He's sovereign. He's never left. He hangs me in both behind and before. He guides my steps. He moves me to different places because he is sovereign. And having bowed my knee to him, he is my king. He can do whatever he wants with my life. Paul is strengthened by the truth that he knows the one who is sovereign and he knows the one that is wise. The one who numbers the hairs on his head. The one who orchestrates all things in the world to happen in a certain way for a purpose, both for the glory of God and the individual's good. Paul knows. I can trust him and he knows he can trust him because this God that he spends time with, this king that he spends time with, is also incredibly loving. See, Paul knew... Jesus Christ had come to die for him. He knew that before there was even time, God in his grace had chosen him. He knew before the foundation of the world even got put into existence, 
God in his grace, who he knows and walks with. God in his grace had chosen him and called him name. And at the right time, the Father sent the Son, and that Son gladly came. Even though it had been dying at Calvary in a painful and excruciating way, not only physically, but primarily spiritually, because he's cut off from the Father. And yet Paul knew that you did that. You, you did that for me. You did that so I could be forgiven of my sins. You could be removed as far as the east is from the west. You came on the greatest rescue mission ever told so that I could be reconciled and justified. You came and you, you died in my place at Calvary so I could be adopted into the very family of God so that I could call you Father, so that I could love you, so that I could be assured that you will never leave me nor forsake me and knowing for sure that heaven is going to be my home. And you did that all because you loved me. You know, the strengthening effect for Paul of actually knowing Jesus Christ is on full display, isn't it? He doesn't just know of him. He knows him. As a sovereign one, as a wise one, as a good one, as a loving one, one who will never leave him nor forsake him. And so he doesn't find contentment in the horizontal. Or whatever's happening in the horizontal. He's finding contentment in the vertical. Because he never changes. Robert Jones defines this contentment that Paul is describing here like this. I love this. He says, Contentment is finding inner satisfaction in God alone and in his provision for you. It is experiencing his peace and confidence in difficult times and it is consciously enjoying the fact that God is good even when your circumstances are not. That sums up Paul's contentment. In God's kindness, he is experiencing an inner satisfaction in God alone and his provision for you. He's experiencing God's peace and confidence even in the difficult times because despite the circumstances, he's finding contentment in the Lord, the sovereign, wise, loving, great king of kings who has inscribed Paul's name on his hand. So whatever he sees, he finds contentment in the Lord. And this is here because Paul wants to call this rare jewel out to us to say, can you take it as well? You need to take this. You need this for your life. Whether you be in plenty or whether you be in poverty. You know, when you look at Paul's life, and when you examine Paul's life, it's not hard to realise that if Paul had been spending his life looking at his circumstances or the horizontal of his life for contentment, then he would have been all over the place, wouldn't he? Oh, this week, I've got plenty. I have got God's amazing. This week, poverty. I hate my life. It's awful. Oh, I'm in abundance again. This is great. This church is rocking. Last week, I got to preach to a thousand people and a thousand people came to know the Lord. I'm so content. This week I'm in jail. And I've got to share it with one of my roommates, but that's like it. And I thought I was causing more than this. Damn. If Paul had been finding his contentment in the horizontal, he would have been up and down and up and down like a yo-yo. But he's not, is he? And he's not 
because he wasn't finding his contentment in the horizontal. And neither was Horatio Gates Spafford, and neither was Matthew Gager. The secret of contentment for all of those men was they looked up. Despite their circumstances, they looked up. Whether in plenty or in poverty, they looked up. And in Jesus Christ, they found a sweet peace. My friends, I want to encourage you, this is the secret of contentment. If there's one lesson I think we want to heed and model in our life, I would suggest to you, this is right up there. Because it changes everything. Would we be a people that run to Jesus Christ, that don't look to our circumstances for our contentment, but look to Jesus Christ, and in him, and a relationship with him, would we truly find a sweet peace? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you for the gentleness in which you address us as your children. Lord, you are a faithful father and you cannot help but read parts of Philippians and be aware that even behind Paul is you, a father sitting around with his children explaining to us something that you want us to have, a rare jewel. Lord, did you give us the grace to take that jewel and to wear it like a crown? Lord, did you give us the grace in our lives not to run after our circumstances, not just to give our lives to consistently trying to change our circumstances, but would we give our lives to looking up? And Lord, in you then, would we find a sweet peace? Would we find a confidence in you, an affection in you, a joy and a peace in you? Because Lord, in you, that peace can truly come. Amen.